Welcome to this pure voice on demand activity based on a recent live event. This video based activity comprises four presentations with a panel of experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this virtual education symposium on redefining balance in hemophilia. Can we restore hemostasis by inhibiting anticoagulation? My name is Johnny Mathangu. I am a hematologist based in Johannesburg, South Africa, and it is my pleasure to welcome you together with my uh, fellow uh, eminent faculties. This is uh, today's uh, agenda, uh, redefining balance in hemophilia. Can you restore hemostasis? Uh, we are going to, following this very short welcome and introduction, and I am going to uh, invite Dr. Lauren Frenzel uh, to take you through a reminder of the coagulation cascade. And then I'll come in um, with the, the rationale for rebalancing therapies. And then uh, Dr. Christopher Walsh will take you through uh, how can we interpret the clinical data. And then the final part of this symposium will be an interactive panel discussion, uh, which will then lead to the end. With that introduction, it is now my pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Laurent Franz, who will take you through the coagulation cascade and where the rebalancing agents are acting. Over to you, Dr. Franz. Good morning, uh, everyone. Um, thank you, uh, Professor Marango, for this kind introduction. And today, we're talking about uh, analyzing a discrete scale about coagulation cascade in hemophilia and the current treatment uh, strategy. So we are quick move on uh, to the coagulation cascade in hemophilia. And just to resume uh, this uh, cascade, uh, we know that actually in a physiological point of view, we have three steps uh, for this uh, coagulation cascade. We have the initiation, amplification, and the propagation, as you can see on the right of the slide, about thrombin generation. And uh, if you look at uh, uh, the, the, the pink uh, line with hemophilia patient, we see that amplification doesn't occur very uh, well. Why? Because most uh, in, uh, the most coagulation factor um, in the amplification uh, is probably the factor eight and the factor nine, as you can see in the middle uh, of uh, the of the of the slide, and. Uh, that's why probably in hemophilia A or hemophilia B, due to the lack of factor eight and factor nine, we can see a disrupt of the completion of the coagulation cascade, resulting in blood clots that form more slowly and that do not form at all for severe patients. And so patients uh, are going to bleed and the level of frequency of bleeding depends on the severity of the disorder. And uh, bleeds occur mainly in the muscle and other joints. We can see that uh, the, most, uh, the, the most common complication in hemophilia patient is about hemophilic arthropathy. And hemophilic arthropathy is directly uh, the consequence of clinical and subclinical hemarthrosis, uh, because uh, this hemarthrosis uh, can lead to the development of uh, chronic synovitis, chronic synovitis that induce some inflammatory directly inside of the joint, and this inflammatory 
um, background uh, leads to a complete destruction of uh, the, the joints for, for patients. And that's why uh, what we need to, to do for hemophilia patients is to stop the repeated bleeding. And if we can stop it, uh, we can avoid the um, uh, synovitis. And if we avoid synovitis, we can protect the joint of the patient. The question now is how we can stop joint bleed. We have different options. Uh, we have different, actually, we have different options. We have uh, injection of factor, standard half life uh, or extensor half life. We have some non factor therapy. And uh, now we have also possibility uh, to treat patients with gene therapy. And uh, the goals of the different treatment is not the same, as you can see, with different level of protection uh, if you want a ideal prophylaxis through uh, cure, for example. If we start with the older one uh, about factor replacement uh, therapy and the standard half-life, maybe all of you know uh, this paper from uh, the Monken Johnson team about the efficacy uh, of prophylaxis for patients. Of course, patients who are injected twice or third time uh, a week the, the injection are better protection uh, for the for the joint health, for example. There are less bleeds, of course, but uh, this kind of treatment have some limitation. Some limitation because some patients um, are, um, are still expected some micro bleeds, and someone, some other, uh, will uh, uh, expect some inhibitor uh, development. And um, the observation uh, with uh, the repeat intravenous injection every two days or twice weekly, it's very hard for the, for the patient. And uh, we know now, uh, if we look uh, about 10, 20 or 30 years for this patient who are on, um, on a correct profit with this uh, factor replacement, we uh, can observe that uh, the joint continue to be destroyed uh, after uh, a long time. And if we um, look at the right of, the, of this slide and a more recently publication with the MRI uh, use of the, uh, of the joint, we can see that some patients who are only uh, 18 years, uh, one third more than one third of, of this patient who are early or good trophy, uh, begin, uh, begin to have some uh, joint uh, problems and joint abnormality that we can see on the MRA. So we need other treatment. Of course, we need the other treatment, but how we can do that? We can do that to uh, extend the half-life of the treatment. We can do that uh, for the factor nine, pegylation fusion, for example. And we try to do that with, uh, with the factor eight. We have a new treatment uh, called BF001, uh, shows some very interesting results. But now we have no joint health uh, data about uh, this extra, uh, extra uh, half-life treatment. And patients with inhibitor are still excluded, and the patient still need uh, intravenous injection, at least weekly, but it still need intravenous injection. And for some patients, it could be very difficult uh, to do that. So now uh, maybe it's 
uh, five years ago, another kind of treatment appeared uh, in the uh, in the hemophilia uh, in the hemophilia fields about uh, what we call a non-factor replacement therapy. And uh, the only who are actually uh, licensed it's uh, the emicizumab. Emicizumab is a, a monoclonal antibody who binds uh, for the one on the part on the factor 10 and the other part of the factor 9. It's only uh, for hemophiliac patient, but uh, it's a really good treatment. Why? Because we, uh, we, uh, we have some study, uh, the AVEN program, uh, still published uh, in some years, that we can see effectively this kind of treatment is really uh, efficient for patients uh, about uh, bleeding and uh, joint bleeding. But um, we currently, we don't have any uh, joint uh, data uh, with uh, patients under emicizumab trophy. Patients with hemophilia B, of course, are, are excluded. And patients with hemophilia, uh, we can just partially recover the hemostatic uh, function. Uh, we uh, transform uh, an hemophilia, a severe hemophilia A, on a mild hemophilia A. And some patients keep an hemorrhage phenotype, even as if, if they, are, they are on hemicizumab uh, trophy. Some patients develop anti-drugs, anti-emicizumab, and uh, we can observe in the, 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 some studies with emicizumab some traumatic events. So um, what we have uh, now uh, as another option for treatment for the hemophilia patient, we have, of course, gene therapy. Gene therapy is different because the patient uh, are expecting something different uh, with, uh, with the gene therapy. They are expected to be pure because uh, we hope to uh, have uh, physiological levels of hemostatic uh, um, uh, uh, levels, hemostatic uh, uh, function. Um, and the patient uh, with only one injection could be uh, quite for a long time. That's the, the patient are expected. But in really, uh, and we have now some uh, phase three study uh, with gene therapy in hemophilia for hemophilia patient. On the left of the slide, you can see uh, for the hemophilia, uh, hemophilic, uh, hemophilia A patient uh, and, and the hemophilia B patient, of course, uh, it works. It really works. We can uh, show a uh, strict, strictly uh, the difference between uh, joint bleeding, joint bleeds uh, overall, but also in uh, joint bleeding. But we have a lot of limitation uh, with the gene therapy. And as you can see, just on the right of the of the of the slide, it's about um, a, um, a short study from the Belgian team uh, with um, with Cédric Hermans, who asked uh, in uh, the center uh, uh, patient if they are really uh, if they really want to do uh, gene therapy. And about maybe it's just less than 100 patients. If you look at the below uh, the, the, the screen, you can see only only 8% of patients could really have uh, could really uh, get uh, gene therapy. Why? Because there are a lot of limitations of gene therapy. For example, patients with inhibitor actually are excluded, or pre-existing AAV antibody also. Uh, patients with liver uh, disease, with cancer, joints uh, are also excluded as well. Patient fears is very important because it's gene therapy. Patients have uh, fears about uh, some concert or uh, about uh, this kind of, uh, of issue with, uh, with the gene therapy, about thrombolytic events. 
because uh, in some case with some study, uh, some patient um, experience a very higher dose, uh, 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 very higher levels of uh, coagulation factor. And uh, when we start uh, gene therapy, we ask to the patient to know alcohol contribution during the initial months and to do some uh, twice weekly biological sample to monitor uh, the, the, the liver. So, in conclusion, uh, for this first part, uh, and I want to conclude with a simple question, do we still need alternative treatment for hemophilia patients uh, in 2023? My answer, but I'm not, I'm not alone, of course, but my answer is of course, yes, because we have some patients who can have uh, this uh, treatment. For example, hemophilia B with inhibitors, it's a really a concern, really an issue with, uh, with this patient. Some patients uh, still uh, get, uh, get some bleed phenotype uh, with current prophylaxis. We have some side effects or loss of efficacy with current treatment, clearly. And we have very uh, low data, very uh, few data about the joint health and the new treatment as emicizumab, uh, for example. And we can uh, imagine if we can provide uh, factor eight, factor nine, or emicizumab, we can also uh, restore uh, hemostatic uh, activity uh, by targeting uh, the anticoagulant, natural anticoagulant, like uh, anti-TFPI or anti-thrombin-3, for example. And so it's my pleasure now to uh, introduce uh, Professor Malangu uh, about this uh, new kind of treatment for hemophilia patients. Thank you all for your attention. Welcome to this Pure Voice On Demand activity based on a recent live event. This video-based activity comprises four presentations with a panel of experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Thank you, uh, Dr. Franzel, and it is now my turn to take you through the rationale for rebalancing therapies. We have been lucky in the hemophilia community to see this unprecedented evolution of the therapeutic landscape, starting with blood and blood products. And this, uh, of course, culminated with the formulation of the plasma-derived uh, clotting factor concentrate in the 1970s. And with the advent of DNA technology, uh, we welcomed the uh, first use of recombinant clotting factor concentrates, and more recently, uh, the recombinant clotting factor concentrates with improved pharmacokinetics. Uh, this is all used uh, for replacement therapy in hemophilia. The, the reality with uh, the replacement therapy is that it has a number of intrinsic limitations, and I've listed three of those here. The first one is that it is associated in the context of hemophilia with up to 30% immunogenicity. The second limitation is that uh, it imposes um, a treatment burden and, and, of course, poor adherence because it has to be given uh, intravenously. And then the third limitation is that uh, it is characterized by peaks and troughs. Uh, one is not able to maintain adequate factor level to protect patients from bleeding at all times. It is in this context that non-factor therapies have evolved in order to address uh, most of these unmet needs. Uh, to remind you that the non-factor therapies, uh, in fact, uh, fall into four categories. The first one is the factor eight mimetics, 
Uh, this is uh, uh, the prototype being Emisuzumab. Uh, and of course, more recently, my mate, Emisuzumab, has completed a number of phase three studies. And um, my mate has just completed the, the, the phase three studies. Uh, and in fact, they are about to be published. The antithrombin is the second category. The prototype is Vichisaran. It has completed at least two phase three studies. The anti-TFPI monoclonal antibodies, uh, which are progressing in the clinical setting, are concizumab and mestazumab, uh, which have completed phase two and phase three studies, respectively. As we know, uh, the Bay 109 was terminated, and the MG1313 is currently ongoing in the phase one study. And then the final category is the anti activated protein C, the serpent PC, uh, which is currently in the phase one study. And I want to take you through the mechanism of action of the factor eight mimetics. Just to remind you that um, the factor eight is an important uh, cofactor that brings together activated factor nine together with factor 10. And the complex that is formed is the tennis complex uh, which obviously forms the prothrombinase complex leading to clot formation uh, during the uh, activation of coagulation. In the absence of factor eight, uh, the bispecific monoclonal antibody performs exactly the same function as factor eight, leading to the formation of the tenase complex, and of course the downstream effect being thrombin generation and clot formation. What are some of the advantages of the uh, factor eight mimetics? I've listed here a few of those. Uh, they bridge the activated factor nine and factor 10 to form a tenase complex and therefore restore the function of the missing factor eight. They have no structural homology to factor eight and therefore uh, are not inhibited by neutralizing antibodies directed against factor eight. And finally, they are administered subcutaneously, which takes away the high treatment burden associated with intravenous administration that is required for replacement therapy. If what moves on to the anti-tissue factor pathway inhibitor, the mechanism of action is relatively straightforward. Just to remind you that in normal hemostasis, upon activation of hemostasis, you have activated factor seven, which associates with tissue factor Together with factor 10, uh, they form a complex, which complex then is able to generate thrombin. The role of tissue factor pathway is to bind to activated factor 10, uh, therefore limiting the amount of thrombin generated and therefore clot formation, bringing balance into uh, the space of a bleeding individual or a clotting individual. And what the monoclonal antibody does uh, it blocks the K2 domain of the tissue factor pathway and therefore allowing clot formation uninhibited in the context of uh, patients with uh, bleeding diathesis such as uh, hemophilia. Uh, the molecules I've alluded to, they are concizumab and mestazumab uh, that are currently progressing. And I'm giving here an overview uh, of the uh, features. Uh, in fact, uh, two of these uh, molecules and uh, the concizumab and the MG1313, they are IgG subtype. The mestazumab is an IgG1 
Bevo, Vasimap is an ITG tool. Uh, all of them bind to the K2 domain except for uh, the uh, now terminated uh, program on the Bayer program. Uh, in fact, uh, they have all completed phase one uh, except for the uh, MG1313, whose phase one is still ongoing. And in fact, some of them have completed phase two, uh, and that is the consistent map and the mistakes map. And you'll hear more about the phase two data uh, from uh, these uh, clinical trials. Uh, just want to highlight here the advantages of anti-tissue factor pathway therapies, uh, which are many. They are given subcutaneously. They may offer consistent pharmacokinetics. They are suitable for both inhibitor and non-inhibitor patients. And of course, they can treat both hemophilia A and hemophilia B. Moving on to um, the siRNA therapies, uh, the rationale for their use is that in the absence of factor eight or factor nine, uh, in the presence of antithrombin, uh, one is unable to generate clot. And what Fitusiren, which is a prototype uh, anti-sRNA, uh, uh, it will block antithrombin via the activated tannin thrombin, resulting, of course, in clot formation. Uh, and the therapeutic hypothesis is to lower the antithrombin level, uh, leading, of course, uh, to clot formation, which is now beyond the proof of concept. The uh, anti-TFPI, they, they, they've got a number of, uh, the, the non-factor therapies have got a number of uh, advantages and disadvantages. And, and I've listed here some of the advantages. They are given subcutaneously. They've got relatively long biological half-lives. They lack immunogenicity and they manage patients with hemophilia A with or without inhibitors. The potential disadvantages is that uh, some of them are associated with injection site reactions, which happen to be uh, the most common adverse events when you're using these drugs. Uh, it is possible that there may be delayed exposure to replacement therapy, and therefore patients may not uh, know, be able to get enough exposure and uh, not to be able to develop uh, immunogenicity against the use of replacement therapy. And uh, the last disadvantage is that they may be used for prophylaxis only, but not for the treatment of bleeds. So if I were to summarize uh, the rationale for rebalancing agents, uh, I've pointed out the unmet needs. There are four classes of rebalancing uh, non-factor therapies that have evolved to address these unmet needs. And I've taken you through the rationale for their use of uh, these rebalancing agents. And these, in fact, have progressed beyond proof of concept, and many have com completed a number of clinical trial uh, development programs. Uh, rebalancing agents have got several advantages over replacement therapies. These include consistent hemostatic cover, reduced treatment burden, and of course, lack of immunogenicity. In my view, all indications suggest that the rebalancing agents may become the standard of care in the management of patients uh, with hemophilia. Thank you very much. Um, it is now my pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Christopher Walsh, who is going to take you through how can we interpret the safety and efficacy results of the use of rebalancing agents. Over to you, uh, Dr. Walsh. Welcome to this Pure Voice On Demand activity based on a recent live event. This video-based activity comprises four presentations with a panel of experts, 
At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's my pleasure to uh, present the last in this series uh, on uh, the current clinical data for uh, rebalancing therapies in, in hemophilia. Uh, the hypothesis uh, put forward many years ago was that in the setting of hemophilia where factor levels are low, that if one reduced uh, the uh, anticoagulant uh, controlling uh, proteins such as TFPI, uh, antithrombin-3, protein CNS, one could balance uh, uh, the uh, two components of hemostasis and allow for uh, increased thrombin generation and, and subsequently uh, fiber formation. And that's shown on, <clears throat> on this slide. Um, as of now, there are at least uh, four drugs currently in clinical trial uh, uh, that are uh, using this, this hypothesis. And they are listed here. The first is Fetuzaran, which is an um, interesting drug. It's a small inhibitory RNA that is targeting the messenger uh, RNA of uh, antithrombin-3. Uh, Concizumab is a, a monoclonal antibody that binds and inactivates tissue factor pathway inhibitor, as does Marstacumab, which interestingly bind to the same uh, or similar domain on TFPI. And finally, a unique protein. It's a modified uh, alpha-1 antitrypsin. It's a protease or serpin that targets specifically activated protein C. Um, in the last column here, all these studies look at both hemophilia A and B patients with and without inhibitors. So they're uh, a very... Um, even though the mechanisms, uh, the drugs that are used are quite different, um, the, the actual uh, uh, outcome in patients are uh, very similar. It's all interesting to note that these are all subcutaneously uh, delivered drugs. Fetuzaran is uh, given weekly, concizumab is daily, marstacumab is weekly, and I believe serpent PC is every two weeks. So sub-Q drugs for all uh, hemophilia A and B patients. Uh, study design is very straightforward. It's, uh, this is, it just shows that uh, the uh, cohorts are compared on drug to those um, who are on demand, whether it's bypassing agents or factor. And <clears throat> these are randomized. Uh, the primary endpoints are annual bleed rate and secondary the dairy endpoints are listed, uh, spontaneous joint ABRs, quality of life, et cetera. Uh, we'll first look at Fertuzaran and the uh, last column in phase three uh, uh, data that's available is that heme, and a, heme A and B patients without inhibitors, the ABRs are quite good. Um, mean uh, ABRs are essentially zero um, uh, in heme A and about two, two to three for heme B, but the B median, combined median ABR is zero. 
uh, for those patients uh, who are on bypassing uh, agents, those who have inhibitors, excellent data with ABR mean is 1.7. And again, median is, is zero. The safety, as we'll get into uh, in a bit more detail, is that there are some elevated ALTs, cholecystitis, cholelithiasis, um, and no thrombotic events, which would be um, might be expected due to um, phase two uh, studies that showed there was significant uh, thrombosis, one leading to death that actually uh, halted the study and and engendered a risk mitigation where uh, measurements of AT3 and uh, underlying uh, risk for thrombosis um, uh, had to be factored uh, back into the study. And we'll get into that in a little bit later. Um, for concizumab, this is again the monoclonal antibody. This is given uh, sub-Q daily. Results are excellent, shown in the last uh, 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 column. ABRs were less than one, median ABR was uh, zero in patients with inhibitors. Uh, to my knowledge, though, patients without inhibitors uh, has yet been reported. Um, again, in this study, there, was, uh, there were three uh, thrombotic events, both venous and arterial. This uh, caused a halt to the study and uh, drug assays, ELISAs to the drug were uh, instituted. Uh, defining toxic doses were uh, defined, and underlying uh, risk for thrombosis uh, uh, were, again, uh, required for uh, furtherment of the study. There were two deaths, but thought to be unrelated to the study drug. Marstacumab, again, uh, similar to concizumab. This is now, I believe, a week weekly uh, sub-Q uh, event showed in phase two studies, no thrombosis, excellent bleed rate reduction. The phase three data is to be presented at ISTH in just a, uh, shortly. And to date, as far as I'm aware, there's been no thrombotic events. This may be due to the fact that um, the protocol excluded uh, patients with either genetic or non-genetic risk for uh, thrombosis. Essentially, both heme and B patients with and without inhibitors. If one looks at the median um, ABR on the final row here, it ranges anywhere from essentially zero to two, which is excellent. Um, and finally, the last drug we'll look at is the Serpent PC, uh, where these are still in the phase, phase two drug finding mode. The study looked at either giving uh, the drug either um, uh, 60 milligrams for Q4 weeks or 1.2 milligrams per kilogram Q2 weeks. And one sees uh, in the data here that at least uh, what they're finding is that the Q2 uh, week approach seemed to give a much better ABR in both patients, heme and, heme and B, with and without uh, inhibitor, followed out to uh, uh, at least six months. Um, importantly, safety-wise, there was no elevation of D-dimer and no thrombotic events, but the numbers of patients, as you can imagine, was quite low. Um, once again, elevated ALTs, uh, liver function tests were uh, transient or uh, minimally elevated, and um, that was the major 
safety finding. So uh, just to reiterate in terms of safety in, in this class of drugs, where the balance between uh, coagulants and anticoagulants could be a, fi a fine, fine point that would have to be fine-tuned for each one of these drugs. For Fertuzaran, there were roughly five thrombotic events in over 260 patients tested. It's about a 2% um, thrombotic risk. And so the FDA has required the company to repeat this using their dose, uh, their risk mitigation scheme. And um, the, the, all the patients with thrombosis either had very low AT3 levels, less than 10%, or had AT3 levels between 10 and 20% that had concomitant factor or bypassing use. Uh, for both concizumab, uh, arterial and venous um, uh, thrombosis occurred in a small number of patients. There were no deaths, but again, risk mitigation in terms of ELISA assays that were developed to measure levels that were thought to be uh, in the safe, uh, safe region and uh, underlying risk for thrombotic disease, i.e. cancer, uh, uh, you can imagine genetic risk, et cetera, were required. Interestingly, the latter two, Marstacumab and Serpent PC, no thrombotic risks that I'm aware of have been reported. Uh, Serpent PC, again, is uh, not the, uh, is, is, uh, is only phase two. Um, Marstacumab will be presented, in their phase three data will be presented. And in some instances, I haven't mentioned uh, Serpent PC, there were non-neutralizing antibodies uh, to concizumab. There were some uh, anti-drug antibodies that were uh, noted. So uh, in summary, hemostatic rebalancing uh, drugs that can target TFPI, AT3, and ProTC exist. They work uh, very well. They are all subcutaneously given. They work for uh, all patients with hemophilia A with and without inhibitors. And however, the risk for thrombosis requires risk mitigation for thrombosis um, be required for these drugs. And with that, I thank you very much. Welcome to this Pure Voice On Demand activity based on a recent live event. This video-based activity comprises four presentations with a panel of experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, everyone. Uh, it is now my pleasure to welcome you to this question and answer session. Uh, an invitation again for you to please send us your questions uh, to the Q&A uh, Part, uh, so that we can attempt to answer. We've got 10 minutes for this session, and, and, and thanks again to our faculty, Dr. Pranzel and uh, Dr. Walsh, uh, for participating and doing the presentations here. And um, maybe I could uh, warm up and, and start asking uh, specific questions here. And, and I've got already a few questions that are in the Q&A, uh, and I'm going to read this and perhaps uh, ask uh, my fellow faculty members to try and, and answer them. Um, and the first question actually is, uh, what precautions do we need to take for tooth extraction or any other oral surgery in patients with hemophilia? 
Maybe, maybe I could ask uh, Dr. Welch to to attempt to answer that question. Um, it's a good question. Um, um, reality strikes. Um, okay. As far as I'm aware, the uh, uh, redouncing drugs that we've discussed, I have not seen data uh, on their use in the setting of either minor, a minor or major surgery. So um, uh, that's an open question. Um, obviously, the, uh, the use of uh, of antifibrinolytics or uh, the addition of factor bypassing agents, uh, what have you, given the patient type, um, probably will need to be, uh, uh, those studies will need to be performed and uh, published. Thank you very much. And, and then you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the data around uh, no surgery is still uh, evolving. Uh, no, for most of these uh, non-replacement therapies. I've got a second question here, and um, what do you think will be the future of rebalancing agents in the pediatric settings of uh, no, previously untreated patients? Um, uh, Dr. Frenzel, um, do, do you have, I, I know that in your concluding remark, you ask an important question, uh, Will the replacement therapy still be there? And in fact, your answer was yes, it will still be there. But what 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 do you think is the future of rebalancing agents in pediatric settings of previously untreated patients? Yes, yes, of course. It, I think it's a difficult question because we don't have um, any data uh, uh, currently. But um, for example, for some patient with hemophilia um, B with inhibitor, I think we could treat uh, this. Uh, patient and pediatric patient with this kind of treatment. But now we need some, we need more data to answer, uh, to answer this question, I think. Absolutely. And you're right. The data is not there as yet, but it is going to be evolving over time. We've got an interesting question here. How do you individualize treatment for elderly patients with mild hemophilia phenotype? And maybe I could take this question and of course the two of you could add. Uh, we, we do know that the primary indications for these uh, novel therapies has been uh, those patients with unmet need, yet needing phenotype. The ALT leading phenotype has been a secondary uh, indication. And in fact, there is now a precedence that has been established with the tactics where we do know there is a study that has just been completed that showed that in the context of mild bleeding phenotype, it is just as efficacious and as uh, not safe as when it is used in severe hemophilia phenotype. And, and of course, the elderly the population uh, is, is a very important component evaluation of these uh, you know, uh, drugs. Uh, we have very limited data showing that uh, most of these, in fact, are used in the elderly. There is some real-world data, for example, from Israel uh, that showed that it is safe when one is using to, uh, on patients who are 60 uh, years old and above. Uh, the other novel therapies have yet to evaluate the safety and efficacy in that population. And I'm more than happy for uh, the two of you to, to add to, uh, to this question, please, uh, Chris and, and, and Laurent. Lord, go ahead. Excellent. 
And then we've got a scenario here, and, and it's a very interesting scenario, that 62-year-old patient with mild hemophilia A presented with abdominal pain and emesis. The lab, the lab test revealed a factor eight level of 2%. Abdominal CT scan ruled out acute pancreatitis, but revealed an irregular and locally circular thrombosis three to five millimeter thick virtually uh, in the entire length of the abdominal iota. How do you manage this patient? Uh, will you start with intermediate dose, low molecular weight heparin? Maybe Chris, you could come in here. You, you gave us the, the update on the clinical data. Uh, that's an unusual case. Um, I uh, certainly, um, I'd have to think about that offhand. Uh, obviously, if a patient, if this was uh, 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 inherited or is this an acquired, this isn't a child, I assume. Um, so I don't treat kids, but uh, even if this was an adult, that would be uh, the consideration of an acquired or an, an, an inherited uh, hemophilia with a clot is um, very unusual. Uh, to give patients heparin would be uh, very, uh, uh, very interesting um, uh, event that I don't think I would be comfortable with. Uh, the question is whether thrombectomy, something like that, in a large vessel could be performed. Um, but um, certainly one doesn't want to be faced uh, in a hemophilia case, which you're uh, using, um, with a clot. And uh, that's one of the considerations of all these rebalancing drugs is that um, we think we're uh, we're only as smart as we are. Um, the data for some of the trials, as I outlined, has already demonstrated that um, there are limits to how what we think we could do with rebalancing, and so one has to be very careful when uh, use uses those types uh, these types of drugs in the populations from children to um, uh, to the elderly with. Uh, comorbidities, uh, that has to be uh, carefully thought about when uh, using uh, any of these drugs, I, I think. No, thanks, Chris. Um, no, that is obviously a, a, a difficult case. Um, you know, managing bleeding and, and potentially thrombosis in the same patient is always a challenge in, in our field of hematology. But uh, I agree with you completely. Uh, one, one will probably have to get... Um, some more information before the intervention in this particular patient. There is another uh, question here, um, and the question is, uh, what is the physical activity recommendation which the patients are allowed to undertake when they are on replacement therapy? And maybe uh, Dr. Francel, if you don't mind to come in here and give us your thought. Yes, I, I think it's very important to, uh, to encourage you uh, to propose uh, physical activity for all patients, uh, all patients, um, even if they are on a non-prophylaxis with um, substitution, substitution. But I think it's really important. What what kind of sport uh, can you propose? It's I think it's difficult to to answer to have some uh, some kind of guidance or guidelines for all patients. I think it's different from uh, each one. But it's in my opinion. Um, and I think it's that I'm not the, the, the only to think that, 
but it's very important to uh, encourage to, uh, to ask to the patient to do some physical activity like walking for example uh, it's a really good uh, physical activity Thank you very much. And unfortunately, we are, uh, have run out of time. And um, as always, uh, it remains for me to thank uh, all of you for sending these exciting questions. Please continue to send the questions. Uh, we'll, we'll establish a platform where these questions can be answered. And uh, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, you know, to be part of this uh, you know, symposium on rebalancing agents. And it remains for me to thank uh, Dr. Francel and Dr. Walsh um, for their contribution to these. Uh, thanks very much, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the EHA. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.